Amen. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you and good morning. It's good to have you here. I'm excited about today. If you have a Bible or a device, we're going to be in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1. So if you have a Bible, just go to Matthew and take a quick left, just a few books, and you will be there. It's a short book. And I'm just going to say from the outset that this is the type of sermon that can generate anger in people. It's not my goal to do that. But it is going to be very easy for some to say and the pain that they might be having right now, but Luke, you don't know what my situation is. You don't know what my story is. If you only knew and you don't, and you're right, I don't. I don't know all of your story. I don't know what kind of evil has come close to you. I don't know exactly how that feels. And even if I did, even if you were to tell it to me, it's not the same as me feeling it, right? It's not. But as we just saw today, Mark's 48 years of life for me now, and I have felt pain, pain I didn't know was possible, um, pain that I would pray for and pray for to end, only to see it feel like it's getting worse. So I don't understand all of you individually, but I kind of do, right, at the same time. And this is what I know about tragedy. When tragedy finds us or some sort of suffering, some level of evil coming close to us, whether it's in the form of maybe being fired or someone did you wrong at work, you lose your career, maybe your spouse cheats on you, you lose a child, or anything that sits on that shelf. And it's a pretty big shelf, right? We really only have a few responses to it. One, God doesn't exist. Why bother praying? He doesn't exist, right? I mean, this is just a, a statistical anomaly. It has found me at a place very unfortunate. That's number one. Number two is God doesn't care. God does exist, but he just doesn't care. doesn't have much of a heart. He has the strength. He could have deleted this tragedy from your life, just chose not to do so, right? Three, he couldn't intervene. He does care. He just can't stop the tragedy. And then fourth, and this is what I'm going to put before you today, is God is sovereign. This is our fourth option. And he has the ability, the power, and the heart to protect you. But he desired something else that in the bigger scheme of his purposes and strategies was greater than intervening like you wanted in that moment. Listen, nothing, and I mean nothing, reveals and tests our theology quite like evil coming close to us, right? It leaves us confused, frustrated, bitter, resentful, angry. You fill in the blank, right? There's this old Greek legend called the legend of the Gordian knot. Some of you probably know it. It's, it's legend, although I think it's actually true as well. And it's this legend of this knot in some city in Greece that was so tight. I think it was a knot around an ox cart, but I'm not 100% on that. But it was so twisted and so big and so tight and so wrapped and so tangled that nobody was able to untie this knot. The legend goes, whoever unties the knot gets to rule the Greek world, right? And as legend goes, it took Alexander the Great to show up, and he tried messing with this knot, could not untie it, so he drew his sword and just cut it in half, right? And that's how I have felt after every Christmas when I pull those lights down and they form a Gordian knot, and I'm thinking it's cheaper to just buy new ones in the trash they go. Listen, Christianity's Gordian knot is how can something evil be used for good? This is so hard for some of us to even conceive. We don't really even have categories for this in our head, do we? 
I mean, here's my goal. My goal is that by the end of our time, you have at least a way of processing the evil around you that you are able to find God astonishingly beautiful in the midst of whatever evil is swirling and orbiting. Another goal I have is that you see God as trustworthy when it looks like he's very inconsistent. And then third, that you're able to help others who are mid-struggle. You can see them coming apart, but you kind of slip under the police tape of their life and put your arm around them and help walk them through. Now, last week we met Habakkuk. His name means both wrestler and embracer, and we actually look quite a bit at why that's important. He was a prophet that was praying with a lot of endurance. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed for God to do what? For him to undo the evil that was in his own people. God's own people were very evil. They were oppressive. They were rebellious. Habakkuk had seen better times in his late teens, his early 20s. He had seen a revival that came by King Josiah, and he just wanted this to change. He's seen it before. So we all resonated with Habakkuk in his wrestling with this intersection between God being good and God being strong, and yet there's just a lot of evil right in front of his face, which is why Habakkuk would say, and we would resonate with, oh, Lord, how long are you going to stand idly by and watch this? Honestly. You can't see this? How long? We also resonated with how long Habakkuk actually prayed without hearing anything back from God. And what this means for you and me is we pray and we get denials and we get delays and how we're supposed to interact with that. And then I think probably most importantly, last week we saw how impoverished we are and how our ultimate prophet, our better Habakkuk, wrestled on the cross so that God would embrace us. Jesus, our answer. We actually covered quite a bit of ground last week, but we only looked at one of his questions, the first one. Habakkuk asked a question, where are you, God? Now, God's going to answer it. We read the first part of the answer last week. We're going to read the answer this week, but it's only going to provoke a bigger question, and that is, Lord, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing? This doesn't even make sense. As we're going to see, God's answer looks worse than the original problem. It looks cruel. It looks inconsistent. One of the things I tell the staff from time to time is we're putting solutions to some of our problems, and there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of sticking points. We have to work through it. We have to think innovatively. And I always say this, today's solutions will be tomorrow's problems, right? And we all know what that means. I mean, what what seems brilliant today is a strategy to fix whatever problem is going to have us scratching our head in six months or six years. And this is the way it's always been, right? Horses were a problem when it came to transportation. What was our solution? Cars. It's a brilliant idea. Cars are a brilliant idea, but didn't that idea, that brilliant remedy, cough up its own problems, right? I mean, you got to fuel those things. It takes gas, right? You got to put them on roads. That's going to take a lot of work. Those roads have potholes. Now you got problems with that solution. Even the exhaust coming out is a problem because of the gas. So what do we do as a people? We come up with a different car that doesn't really have exhaust. We come up with EVs. Brilliant. We're so smart. Except for that answer's got its own problems. Now you got batteries. Those jokers are heavy. They're expensive. We have to mine all over the world, you know, just to build one. Then you got to charge those things on and on. And so it goes. Whether it's building materials or college football, we fix problems and then those remedies create more problems. Now, we expect this with mankind. We expect this because we're finite, we're limited. We can only do what we can do. We can only work with what we have. But with God, what about his solutions? 
I mean, he's not finite. He's infinite. What about when it looks like with our eyes that his solutions to our problems are actually worse than the problem itself? And that's what we're going to find today. God's solution brings a bigger issue, and Habakkuk is hearing and trusting, but he's wincing a little bit in the midst of it all. He trusts, but he's confused. So let's look in our Bible. We're going to be in Habakkuk 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. And we're going to read a little bit and stop, read a little bit and stop. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. We will see Christ very clearly in this passage. And this is the word for us. Look among the nations, God says, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their injustice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their God. Okay, this is what's happening. God is saying, hey, Habakkuk, I hear you. I hear your petition. You're right. The people, they're being gross. My people are in sin, and I hate it. In fact, Habakkuk, I actually hate it worse than you do. So here's what I'm going to do, fella. I'm going to send the most wicked and devastating army in human history to this point to wipe you out. You'll actually be so astounded, you wouldn't believe it if anyone else told you. That's his answer. Right? Which would lead Habakkuk to think probably what you and I would think. Not really what I was expecting, Lord. I mean, I have several ideas. If you want to hear them, I mean, I'm thinking a revival. You just did it not too long ago. What if we did another revival? What if we cranked that machine back up? Or, or prophets, we could use more of them. It's just me and Jeremiah over here. What if we had like 30 of us? Think of what we could get done. Or, or Lord, what if you just rained hail and brimstone and fire from the heavens, just hitting the nasty people and leaving all of your good people left? I mean, you've done that, right? Or, Lord, don't you have the hearts of kings in your hand? Can't you just change the king's hearts and then just let it trickle down? Or what if you just showed your glory and then everyone just fell on their face and all we could do is put down our wicked? I mean, Lord, there's plenty of options. Do we really have to choose that? God says this. I've raised up the Chaldeans for this. I've groomed them, built them, designed them for this. So he continues. This is Habakkuk. Look in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the, more, the man more righteous than he? Okay. 
All he's saying is, Lord, are you God or not? This is very strong language. Listen, some Old Testament scholars say that that first sentence in verse 12 is one of the strongest statements in your Old Testament. Are you God or not? Are you God or not? Hey, they're worse than us. Like, they're, they're wicked. They're unrighteous. Are you serious? Here's what he's not doing. He's not deconstructing right here. He's reconciling what he knows to be true about God with what God just told him. And he can't square them. He can't put them together. I once heard wisely that there is a difference between a grumble and a groan, a complaining spirit and a spirit-filled complaint. I think we can see that very clearly here. We have a great picture of a confused faith, a grieving faith even. But Habakkuk jumps back in. He wants to make sure that God understands what exactly is happening. So he says this in verse, let's jump in in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he meaning the Chaldeans, Babylon. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here's the main idea and really the big problem all at the same time. God is raising up evil people to judge his own people. He said so. God is using a wicked nation as a club. Hey, does he still do this today? I mean, I don't want to be needlessly inflammatory. That's boring. But I also don't want to just skip over this and read as fast as I can so that we're all comfortable with it. God raised up the Chaldeans to smash his own people and carry the Jews away. He said it. This is what this means. If we were to tighten the screws, it means that he gave military success to the people that come out of Babylon. He gave them success. He allowed them to conquer person after person, people after people, village after village, nation after nation, stealing their young, indoctrinating these youth in the ways of extreme warfare. He designed prosperity for this nation as they trampled down others. Listen, their prosperity, Babylon, which was one of the most influential cities of the known world, it was not the result of some unique political strategy that they got there. I don't care what they told you in college. This was the result of God's sovereign design. How do, we, how do you know, Luke? God says so. I raised them up. I raised them up for this. I groomed them for this. Habakkuk can't even conceive of it. Until God opens his eyes, and even as Habakkuk can see it with open eyes, he's tripping all over it, right? And we do too. I mean, let's just stop for a second. The big historical events happening before our eyes today are also under his sovereign control, or he's not God at all. Elections, wars, threats of wars, just because we scroll down our news app and take it all in and panic a little bit, it doesn't mean that's what he's doing. He's not watching history unfold the way we do with a knot in his stomach. He's not doing it today. He wasn't doing it back then. God drives history. God drives history. History doesn't just happen. I mean, just consider this. Around the time that God was grooming Babylon to figure out ways how to indoctrinate young men, both native, and then foreign, how to pull them all together and teach them to be the most vicious warriors in the world. While he was doing that, 900 miles away, he's also grooming a couple. 
He's raising up a couple to have a kid, and they're going to name him Daniel, right? Now, as the timing would be so providential, Daniel's going to get carried off by these very same Chaldeans. It's interesting. Of course, Daniel wouldn't be alone. He's going to have a few friends with him, the ones that we all heard about and saw in our flannel graphs growing up, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And these are going to be some guys that wanted to stay pure just like Daniel, so pure that they said, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So what does this king do? He tosses them in a fire, a fire that is so hot, it's killing everyone that even comes close to it. So whenever the king says, throw another log on that, the guy's like, oh, man, I mean, how far can I throw? Because if he gets too close, it's going to zap him, and he's dead. So they bind these guys up, they throw them in there, and then they just start walking around, and they're not tied up anymore. And this is what the king says in Daniel 3. But I see four men. Wait, we threw three in. Everyone count with me. Now I see four. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Hey, who do you think that is? Most scholars say it's a theophany. It's Christ himself. All the wicked world is going to see the power of God in this moment. Although the king will not call this God his God, he does say, your God is stronger than all of our gods. The whole world sees it. Hey, listen, God drives history. Drives it. Daniel and his friends, eventually they're going to move aside and make room for new people in history. Esther comes along. Ezra comes along. Nehemiah. All of them just showing us glimpses of Christ in new and fresh and compelling ways. And then, much later, in the fullness of time, as the Bible says, Jesus himself would come. And then his church. And his church is going to grow. And it grows fast. You know what? One of the reasons it grows so fast the Jews were spread all out. They're spread all over the plains. Jews over here, Jews over there, Jews over there. You see, when Ezra and Nehemiah went back to rebuild Jerusalem, not everybody went. No, most people stayed, actually. And so what happened to those who stayed? Well, they stayed together. They stayed Jewish. They built synagogues. They kept culture intact. By word of mouth, even by written word, they would convey the truth of God from generation to generation to generation. Gee, I mean, just consider what's going on. God's people were carried all over the world as exiles, and it ended up being the soil for Christianity's rapid spread. The evil of that exile became a blessing for the planet, making its way all the way to Knoxville, Tennessee, 2,000 years later, where you are sitting right now. All of this according to a righteous plan, in perfect timing, with glorious results. God drives history. But we can't see it in real time, can we? We can't see all this happening. In re- Why? Because we're finite. We're so small. We're finite. And this is where we struggle, you and me. We're allergic to submitting to an infinite, sovereign God. What we're more tempted to do is to position ourselves as a peer, wanting to maybe consult God counsel God on what he should do, when he should do it, and what it should look like. Friends, when we get like that, we need perspective, don't we? Positioning. We, we need to understand how we're positioned and what perspective is really true in that moment. And this is why I find some of these passages so very helpful in the Bible, because what you have is the voice of men stating what the real perspective is. Psalm 39, behold, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's perspective. 
I'm finite, you're not. I'm small. It's resizing himself, resizing God. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. This is the one, this bugs me the most. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Man, that's humbling. You know, a 45-minute drive from here, that way, in Cosby, Tennessee, in the foothills, right in front of the Smoky Mountains, there's a cemetery there. It's called the Thomas Cemetery. It's where all of my ancestors are buried. I didn't know that before we moved here, by the way. That's another story. These are folks with odd-sounding names, like Abraham and George. Can't even read the tombstones anymore. They go all the way back to the early 1800s. My great, great, great grandfather is there. I think about that guy about once every never, right? You too, right? Nobody got up this morning thinking about their great, great, great anything. You don't even know his name. You don't know his name. But we had him. Men, women, they lived great lives, full lives, hopes and dreams. They prayed. They flirted with each other. They built companies. They played jokes. They laughed. It's all dust now. It's all dust. That's you. Are you encouraged yet? So glad you came to Legacy Church where we could encourage you every week. Friend, you're a vapor. I'm a vapor. And in three generations, that's all it's going to take. Three, my, my great, great grandkids, they won't, know my, they, won't, they won't even know my name. They won't even know my first name. Who are we to counsel God on how he sees fit to drive history? This is precisely where Job found himself, by the way. You read the story of Job. Listen, I'm going to read like two verses of Job. Every time someone says I'm about to read from Job, everyone panics. I'm going to read just a little bit. This is in chapter 38, and you can stay where you're at in Habakkuk. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's getting off to a great start here. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Not there? Check. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines the measurements? Surely you know. Nothing there either? Check. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I could read on and on and on. Listen, it goes like this for two full chapters. 81 verses of God asking questions like, hey, fella, where were you when I invented ostriches? Not there, were you? Or thought of rain. Were you there for that? Or, or decided how many days each mountain goat would be alive? Did you design the view of a hawk? How about galaxies? What about sea monsters? Never seen one? Where were you for all of this? Listen, I don't even know what's going on across this city, honestly. I took my daughter home the other day, or to school, and I took a shortcut on the way back. I'm so thankful I have a little magic light box that has an arrow that tells me where to turn, because if that wasn't working, I'd still be driving around in circles. And I remember looking out the window going, I did not even know this. I didn't even know this was in Knoxville. Like, there's a giant community there. I've never even seen it before. Like, I have no idea where I'm going. I'm so glad I have a machine and gas, or else I'd never get home, right? I don't even know what's going on across the block. We're so finite. 
But we want to counsel God on exactly how to answer our prayers. Isaiah says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we hear that, we think to ourselves, I know, I know, I know, God is smarter than me. No, friend, he's not, he's infinite. He's not just smarter than you. He is infinite. He built time itself from outside of time. He built a material world as an immaterial God. He's not just smarter than you. He's omni. He's omnipotent. He's omnibenevolent. We're finite. Listen, two consolations and three applications very quickly and then we're out of here. Number one on consolations because I do think we need them here for a passage like this. There's always judgment for wickedness. Always. Right? You can bank on it. We're going to get to this later in this same book, but this is what you need to know. God is not going to let the Chaldeans off the hook. I mean, Assyria had already come and gone, and, and Chaldeans kind of pushed him off the podium a little bit, but guess who's coming next? The Persians. And they're going to bow their chests and flex all until the Greeks come. Then the Greeks are going to put them in their place until when? Until the Romans decide that's enough. And then Romans, until when? And then the Visigoths. There's always another bully waiting around the corner. On, that's how empires go. On and on and on. There's always another bully, but wickedness will never go unchecked. Not for long, because God is just. And we see the pinnacle of his justice whenever the last bully is put in the grave. And that's death and decay itself. It's the last bully. And how did he do this? He took the same wrath he prescribed on you and me. All of our sin, when it's weighed, is due the wrath of God. But as I quoted Roland Baton last week, the judge atop the rainbow becomes the derelict upon the cross. And he comes and he receives the perfect amount of punishment, the perfect amount of wrath. It was meant for you and me. There's always judgment for wickedness. Two, as far as consolations go, the action of good from evil is a theme that echoes down throughout the entire Bible. This isn't the first time we see it, okay? Go on your own time. It'd be a great study for a week or two. Look at the life of Joseph. If you remove a sovereign God from Joseph's life, all you get is that's the luckiest guy or the unluckiest guy, however you want to look at his story, that has ever existed. That feels like every time you can get some traction evil comes and knocks him down a couple pegs. And then he pays his dues and he works his way up and then again, evil knocks him down a couple pegs. That's what it reads. But this is what he says. As for you, to his evil brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is something that just moves through the whole narrative of the Bible. Joseph's life, it foreshadows an ultimate good coming through an ultimate evil, through an ultimate Joseph. Jesus is a better Joseph. It was a much better right hand to a much bigger king who fed those who were starving even more, even spiritually starving, among not just the nations of the world, but all the nations that would ever exist, even those who would hurt him. Truth. Jesus was executed by our designs using our worst methods. And what our hands meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good. Habakkuk's dilemma, right, our Gordian knot. 
it's only resolved at the cross. The place where the blood of our king covers the blood on our hands, you need to be consoled, be consoled, not just that judgment will always come after wickedness, but be consoled that God brings good from evil. He brings good from evil. So you and me, just like Habakkuk, we can trust, even if it means wincing from time to time because we can't quite compute exactly what's happening. So here's where I'm going to tread even more lightly. How do we interact with God when evil does come near to us and we also know that he is sovereign, right? I think one thing is we have to learn how to say, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I mean, Lord, I just pray that you would make these things that are blurry, make them a little bit more clear for me. Until then, I'm going to hold on to what I am confident of, and I'm going to move forward. You have mystery. You shroud yourself in it. I'm finite. You're not. I trust you. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he spoke on this many moons ago using a picture that's always been helpful for me, and it's the picture of a sidewalk covered with patches of ice, right? Listen, there's not a funnier video in the world than someone walking on a patch of ice and slipping and wiping out. I don't know why I find it funny, but I'm so thankful for doorbell cameras, right? Because they're there and we get it all in 4K now. And I can laugh all day at those. But what's happening? Why are they slipping? Because they're putting all of their weight on a patch of ice because they can't tell what's ice and what's not. And then they go down and the coffee goes everywhere and we all laugh and it's funny, right? What he says, what Jones says, is when you're looking at this treacherous sidewalk with patches of ice, don't plant all of your weight where you're not sure. Move your feet to places where you can place all of your weight, where you can do it, where your footing is sure. Friends, listen, if I'm diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, I'm going to have some period of time, I'm certain of it, where I'm going to have a case of the why me's. Why now? Why me? Why now? But I've got to place my weight on some truths that sound a little bit more like God is good, he is sovereign. I'm a traveler here anyway. This is never going to be my home. I know he's good. I know he's thoughtful. I know he's kind. I know he loves me. I know he hates his cancer worse than I do. His wisdom is better than mine. His thoughts are higher than mine. I'm going to place my weight there. And I do know this. When I see him in forever one day, I will look at the, just the beautiful, sovereign plan of how he knit everything together, your story with mine, with our predecessors, with those that come after us in this part of the world. And I will be able to look and go, oh, my God, I had no idea. You are so smart. You're so brilliant and so creative and so thoughtful and so generous. That's all I'm going to be able to do. That's all you'll be able to do. We could plant our feet there. Second thing, we must feel free to submit our pain to God. He knows how disappointed you are. He, he already knows how disappointed you are in his strategies does that make it right to be angry with God? That's a question. No, it's not. God has not sinned against you. This is where I see a lot of people go off the mark. It's worth mentioning. People are unable to groan without grumbling. They can't tell the difference between the two. So we tell ourselves we're lamenting, but we're really just complaining. We're angry at God. We hate God. And this is where it's tricky because anger with God oftentimes will wear the costumes of bitterness and resentment. It's very acidic. It's, it's very tricky because it, it's more of a 
feeling than it is an action, and we feel entitled to it, so we don't see any need to repent from resentment or bitterness. But friend, it needs repentance. In our bitterness, in our resentment, we are saying, God, you are not good. You would have been good had you done what I said. Had you done what I said, but you hurt me, and you're hateful. Well, listen, God didn't sin against you, friend. You sinned against him. We've got to find humility as finite people. But Luke, you don't know what I've gone through, right? You don't know what I've gone through, and I don't. I don't. But I know what it's like to be angry at God for letting the Chaldeans get through the wall. I know that. I also know what it feels like to lie to myself and say, I'm not mad. I'm just frustrated. I'm not mad at God. I'm just... I'm just a little irked about the situation. It's not true. I'm angry at the Lord. Not only are Habakkuk's complaints only resolved at the cross, that's where I've got to carry mine as well. Again, the place where our king's blood covers the blood on our hands. Third, and then we're done. When entering the pain points of others, spend your words wisely. When you find others in their distinct, nuanced, hard uncontrollable pain, spend your words wisely. Here's a quick rule of thumb, and it's only a rule of thumb. The harder their tragedy, the less words you need to spend in the beginning. The harder what they're going through, the less you need to open your mouth. Ask Job. There are bad times to harshly correct people's bad theology. And when you're with someone and they're suffering, they're going to talk out loud, they're going to vent, and you're going to get a lot of bad theology. Right? They're going to say things that even they know aren't true. <laughs> even they know it's not true. It's not the time for you to go, well, technically, actually, on pain, you know, it's not the time for that. That's not what they want. They don't want a systematic theology friend right then. They just want a friend. So be there. There's a ministry and presence. Hug, cry. When the smoke clears, yes, help them process their agony. They will need help with that. It's time and distance. Move forward. You can increase the volume, increase the words. Be very careful in the beginning, though. I would even say this is true for those who are far from Jesus. So I'm speaking to you as missionaries now, just for a split second. To those who are caught in the net of the Chaldeans, help them see that Jesus hates their pain more than they hate their pain. They can't fathom that. But it's always good to hear. Every time someone has told me that, I've felt somewhat consoled. Everyone you want to take to heaven with you, they've got a thing or two that they hold against God. Or three or four. Right? Your temptation in that moment is going to be to shrink God. This is what your temptation will be as a missionary to say, God didn't want that to happen to you. God only wants good things for you. His arms must just be short. His heart's huge. But 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 the God I serve would never want something like that. He he would never allow something like that to happen. He would never design a world where something like that would happen. Such a big mistake. What they need is a God big enough to help them from evil. What they need is a God big enough to bring good from evil. A God big enough to come for them. Listen, if that's you today, if you're here, or you're watching online and that's you, I do not know what kind of evil has come close to injure you, but can you conceive in your head that Christ felt it too? He didn't just carry all of our committed sins to the cross and our omitted one. He carried everything that was done to you to the cross as well. 
He hates it. Secondly, if that's you today, can you conceive even for a moment that your history has brought you to this very moment? Right now, right here, all of your best decisions, your worst decisions, your seemingly insignificant decisions have corralled you in that chair at this moment, at this time. Why? Why? What is God saying to you today? What is he doing with you today? Could it be that today is the day that Jesus becomes the one you begin to carry your pain to so that it finally makes sense, so that pain finally makes sense? I'm going to pray for you here in a moment, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. But for the rest of us, those of us in Christ, we also have to repent. We also have to turn. We also have to change. We have to take our deepest of pains to Christ and lay them at the foot of a cross that is the very intersection of the worst that man can do and the best that God can do all at the same time. You can trust God. He is not hateful. Justice will be preserved. You are not ignored. He is driving history forward. You are not abandoned. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His wisdom is not your wisdom. We have to repent for positioning him too small, speaking to him like he's a peer, bringing bitterness into it, resentment. Job finishes in Job 40 with one quick statement. He says, behold, after the Lord was done with this tour through, where were yous? He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. That's where we have to find ourselves, church. That's where we've got to find ourselves.